hand sewing needle was a precious resource of global importance, but at some point in time, its utilitarian use for garment construction also embraced surface decoration and embellishment, or in other words, embroidery, and gave birth to the art of the needle. Hello and welcome to the Stitch Safari podcast, a sprightly and upbeat expedition into the alluringly appealing ambrosial world of stitch, sewing and embroidery. Each fortnight we'll trek through and discover the utilitarian, the decorative, the quirky and the just plain fun world that's the art of the needle. Hello and welcome. My name's Kathy Jack Copeland and I'm the Stitch Safari Expedition Leader. I'm an Australian textile artist, teacher, judge, blogger and stitch enthusiast whose work in contemporary machine stitch became my business. The act of embroidery is one of pure pleasure and satisfaction, but researching its history and uses is just a pleasurable, if not a downright hedonistic indulgence on my part. Lucky, lucky me. In my first episode, I talked a little about the evolution of a simple implement that was truly life-changing and of worldwide significance. And that's the adventurous and brave, diminutive little sewing needle. Funny, isn't it, how something so small can make its mark worldwide. And I'm obviously not the only person interested in the impression this tool made upon history. In her book published in 1886, Lady Marion Alford writes, Then new and old facts crowded around me and became significant and interesting. I longed to know something of the first worker and the first needle, and behold, the needle has been found among the debris of the life of Neolithic caveman, made of bone and neatly fashioned. Her book is still available, and it's worthy of investment for any needle art historian. So today, let's thread our way to find out how the needle traversed its stitch and embroidery enmeshed history to become a tool recognised and used worldwide. And trust me, this is a fascinating journey. Paleoman's needles may have been primitive, but at the same time, they were also extremely sophisticated. In 2013, Robert Hovart wrote in his article, Bone Sewing Needles, A Brief History, Our modern sewing needle is the direct descendant of the flint or bone needle, awls, used by humans thousands of years ago. The first needle would have likely been made by using a flint tool. Splinters of bone would have been cut out and trimmed roughly into a pointed shape. The crude needle was probably then polished uh, with sand and water and a soft stone rubber. Finally, the needle's eye would have then been created with a rudimentary stone drill. Just imagine the thought processes needed to fashion that purposeful tool using something already at hand, such as bones, tusks, antlers, then piercing a tiny hole or eye at one end to carry some sort of natural fibre thread to lace or stitch hides together. That's a pretty advanced set of processes to me, all of which gave Paleo man, the ability to travel to colder, perhaps richer hunting grounds to ensure he and his family were survival fed while ensuring they were survival warm because it was all about survival and thank goodness, otherwise where would we be? 
Some of these travelling groups appear to have diversified needle making independently, developing their own fabricating tools, perhaps as a result of group interactions, who knows? All I know is that it would have been a it would have taken a good deal of time and a great deal of skill to form such a small tool. What is known is that from here on in, garment construction developed using a needle and thread. This may have shown tribal or group affiliations becoming what we would call it today, a fashion trend. So the needle along with the development of fibre-based thread enabled stitch, which in turn enabled garment construction. That's all pretty obvious, which also led to weaving fabric. But at some point in time, stitch also moved in a completely different direction. And that's the wonderful realm of surface decoration or embroidery as we know it. Now, to my mind, these are two very different and diverse worlds, believe me. One merges two pieces of hide or leather or fabric into one using some sort of lacing or seam. The other, embroidery, is a surface application to decorate and embellish. Each requires different approaches and processes. Think about it a moment. Here are these divergent techniques, but they may have also been used in conjunction with each other. Indeed, is that how embroidery actually came about? Unfortunately, no one really knows the answer to that question. But what I'm suggesting here is that embroidery may have developed as a means of strengthening a stitched seam, ensuring a longer life garment. Remember, clothing was an extremely valuable resource, just like our designer labels are today. So that could be a creditable explanation However it was first used, either standalone or as a strengthening device, embroidery or surface decoration certainly came into its own right from this time forward. So that oh-so-simple yet able implement, the humble sewing needle now takes on the world of the decorative art as well as utilitarian construction. Wow! Not a bad result for a man crouching in a cold cave wanting to hold some hides together to keep In his article, History of Embroidery, published in 2009, Justin Morris writes, In Siberia around 5 to 6,000 BC, elaborately drilled shells stitched with decorative designs onto animal hides were discovered. Chinese thread embroidery dates back to 3500 BC where pictures depict embroidery of clothing with silk thread, precious stones and pearls. Examples of surviving chain stitch embroidery worked in silk thread have been found and dated to the warring states of China from the 5th to the 3rd century BC. Out of all the surface stitches, chain stitch would have to be my all-time favourite. It's rhythmical and quick to execute, can be used to outline, work detached or as a filler stitch, my favourite. Stitch like an Egyptian would not be out of place in today's world. Their garments made using fine needles made from fish bones, bronze, copper and silver, which were pointed at both ends, but only one end with a piercing or eye. Tomb paintings show decorative stitch used on couch covers, hangings and tents. And some of these examples are super stunning. 
like the funeral tent of Egyptian Queen Issy M. Kebs. Lady Marion Alford writes in her book Needleworkers' Art, But the great piece of patchwork in leather, the funeral tent of an Egyptian queen as it covered the remains of a contemporary of Solomon, absolutely exhibits the proficiency of the designer and the needlework of the 11th century BC. I'm not at all surprised to see patchwork being utilised. Fabric was precious, so making use of small pieces to make a larger patched fabric makes complete and utter sense. I'll be delving into those treasured worlds of patchwork and quilting in upcoming shows. The Romans also used straight needles of bronze and iron, but it's not until around three and a half thousand years ago that medical and sacred Hindu texts mention both straight and curved needles made from high-quality steel. That suggests to me an understanding of task and tool-making to suit that task. Curved needles do that. I mentioned that surviving examples of embroidery are rare, but there are renderings of decorative embroidery recorded in sculptures, paintings and vases depicting ancient peoples wearing their beautiful embroidered garments. Thank goodness for those ancient artists for giving us those historical roadmaps. In 1904-05, a ship named the Osberg, dating from 834 AD, was found well-preserved in a large burial mound in Norway. Among the artefacts were Viking-era embroideries with several examples of silk applique and silk embroidery using satin stitch, split stitch, stem stitch and couching. And the colours in one of the embroideries in particular, it's still amazing, rich and eye-catching after all this time. You, You really couldn't credit it. What a stunning find. I adore Viking design and that's certainly something that we can explore further. Encyclopedia.com was helpful in being able to piece together a very truncated historical timeline here where I'll begin with the astonishing discovery, the writing of Ghazili, a Persian theologian writing around 1100 CE, where he records the 25 stages of work required to make a needle. I'll just repeat that. 25 stages to make a needle. No wonder they were considered a precious resource. Imagine how long it must have taken to make just one. I'd probably lose focus after stage three. It was also around this time that small seed pearls were sewn onto vellum to decorate religious items. Bead embroidery became popular in the 12th and 13th century And from the 15th to the 17th century, embroidery and beading became lavish and sumptuous worldwide, being used on layered baskets, court dress and home furnishings. Needle making continued and became specialised through the formation of guilds. In fact, there was a German guild of needle makers as far back as the 14th century. Professional embroidery workshops and guilds are also seen in medieval England. Their work Opus Anglicanum, or English work, became famous throughout Europe. And there's another trekking expedition right there. Opus Anglicanum is definitely worthy of an episode or two. Stunningly beautiful embroidery. Now this is where the story starts to get interesting from a global perspective and it's how this tiny little implement traversed continents and oceans. 
Needle making was a secret art, closely held by Islamic needle makers. Spanish workers eventually inherited these secrets, taking this knowledge with them when they fled to Germany, France and then on to England. At one stage, in the London of Henry VIII, good old Henry VIII, only one Spanish needle maker was making needles from his own steel wire, the basis of needle making. Other masters were importing their wire from Germany and Spain. But this was to change by the end of the 19th century um, when England started to produce up to 90% of the world's needles. These were used not only for clothing and fashion, but also in the medical, clock-making and goldsmithing trades. In the 18th century, a system of mechanised needle production was developed and is similar to what's done today. Now, this sounds really odd to me, but apparently it works, and I've seen a video of, of it on YouTube, so have a look too. I've got it in the resource package. Thousands of needles are wrapped together in a mix of oil and emery and rolled in a special drum-like machine for two days. And voila, out come clean and shiny needles. Sadly, though, during the early Industrial Revolution in England, the life expectancy of needle makers was very short, averaging only 35 years, due to an occupational pulmonary disease called pointer's rot, caused by inhaling tiny particles of stone and metal during the grinding process. That's a terribly short lifespan. As the 19th century saw higher incomes, a diversity of new textiles and the sewing machine, needles became cheap. This was a time when gold plating was added to some needles to define the eye, along with a variety of styles of needles, especially made to suit various techniques. The sewing needle, with its amalgamated history with stitch and embroidery, is pretty staggering when looked at as a whole. Migrating from ancient Persia to India, China, Japan, Byzantium and medieval and Baroque Europe, producing stunning, extravagant, lavish embroidery and beading. Who isn't captivated by period TV shows and their sumptuous eye candy costumes? But we also see the formation of traditional folk techniques also being passed down generationally in Vietnamese, Mexican and Eastern European cultures, and they're definitely worthy of further research too. Mexican otami embroidery is of great cultural and economic significance to this day. How amazing! From necessity to lavish adornment to generational cultural identity, with so much more in between. And it all comes from a needle, a thread, a fabric and a stitch. A huge thank you for your time. I love researching and writing about these topics. So I hope you're enjoying this journey along with me. Let me know. There's the Stitch Savari podcast Facebook page. Leave a message or a suggestion for a new topic. Mind you, I do have a huge delectable list to work from. I'll also uh, post a resource page for you to dip into um, with the sources uh, that I've used for this show. On the next episode of the Stitch Safari podcast, let's kick off our hiking boots and have some fun. I'll connect the dots between Leonardo da Vinci, the Festival of the Broken Needle, and something called the Needle and Thread Gordy, among other pretty interesting tidbits. So pick up a needle and thread and create something you love. 
or show someone you love how to stitch. Okay, bye for now.